Today we're going to talk communion. We're going to talk communion and then we're going to take communion together. Depending on the faith tradition you came from, uh, it might have different connotations. You maybe had some different experiences with what communion was. Many different churches take it in different ways. Uh, But it's something incredibly significant. Uh, The church for the past 2,000 years has held on to this tradition of communion that Jesus instituted at a Passover feast with his closest followers. Today we're going to dig into that. Uh, But we're going to try to reimagine communion uh, in, in ways other than just the way we'll take it today. Communion began as a meal. Uh, it, it was instituted in the middle of a meal by Jesus, and the early church practiced it as a meal shared together. So um, I want you to think today, as we talk communion, as we dig into those details, about a meal. What's your favorite memory of a meal shared together? I'm thinking of a trip we took to Italy uh, about almost 20 years ago now, and this beautiful, fancy restaurant we were supposed to meet up, it was a lot of my family, my brothers and their uh, and spouses, and then my parents were there. We were supposed to meet up with your parents, and this was pre-cell phones, or they didn't have them or something. Yes. Uh, yes. Here we are at this beautiful restaurant having an amazing meal, and they happened to walk in. Like, we'd been stressing all day. We couldn't fig- we're supposed to stay with them. We've got our bags next to our table because we still couldn't find them. Uh, and then they just walk into the restaurant here in the middle of this beautiful meal, and it's like, oh my goodness, we're saved. We have a place to stay tonight, and we're going to make it through this. Uh, but I remember that meal. What do you remember? A time sitting around a table, sharing food and conversation with loved ones, that That's how we're going to start our conversation of communion this week. So, communion. Jesus is God incarnate. God come to earth. And it's interesting as we look back at Jesus' life, Jesus got in trouble, quote unquote, multiple times for eating with the wrong sorts of people. God in human form got in trouble with the religious leaders because he was sharing a meal with people that society deemed less than or not good enough to sit with them, let alone someone like Jesus. Jesus was accused of eating with tax collectors the betrayers, those, the traitors. They were considered traitors amongst the Israelites. He was accused of, of eating with sinners, is, was the word that they used. Jesus also not only was invited to and ate with different people, but when large crowds would gather around him to hear him speak, he had compassion on them, and he miraculously fed thousands and thousands of people one such time, he had fed this huge crowd. It had gotten dark, and so he'd sent them away. He'd spent the night in prayer. There's this whole story that happened, and, and in the night, the, he crossed over to the other side of the lake, and when the crowd came back and, and he was gone, they went looking for him. Where is this Jesus? And finally, they found him, and they had a really interesting conversation because Jesus um, Jesus realized that they were looking for him simply because he had fed them, simply because he had given them some bread. Food will bring a crowd. It does. Food does bring a crowd. And so they had this really interesting conversation that we'd like to look at today. 
because he tells them about a food that leads to eternal life. So we're going to start off today in John 6, starting in verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Continuing in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of this world. We're going to look at four passages today that talk about communion, and we start with this one that isn't necessarily specifically about communion, instead maybe foreshadowing of what is to come, as Jesus speaks of bread. To begin, he he draws a metaphor of sustenance. Where will you receive your sustenance? For many nations of the world throughout history, bread was that sustaining thing. That was what gave life. That was what gave sustenance to people that they could survive. And so Jesus draws upon that metaphor saying, I will give sustenance. It is because of me, through me, that you can live. And then he speaks to God's will in this passage. He says that eternal life will be through Jesus. In in verse 40, he says, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. And I, I want us to just to pause for a moment and to take that in because here we get a glimpse of God's heart. We get a glimpse of God's desire that God, the creator, God, the almighty God, the God of divine love, his desire is for everyone to believe in Jesus and have eternal life. And that is just a remarkable, remarkable thing. You know, sometimes we overcomplicate faith, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too. Sometimes we make it really, really complicated, and there's a lot of beautiful richness and layers in Scripture that we can dig in, and yes, sometimes that get, that's complicated. But faith doesn't need to be complicated, It's based on this simple, simple truth that God loves humanity and that God loves us and that God's heart desire is for everyone to believe in Jesus and to receive a newness of life that starts now and extends throughout eternity. And so we, friends, we hear and those, those all around us, all of us, we are being invited into the kingdom of God. And all we have to do is accept this invitation. Now, as you said a minute ago, Jesus here is speaking to an Israelite audience, so people following him, experiencing both his teaching and the miracles he's performing. And he draws their attention back to their history, the 
the history of the Israelite people. Um, in fact, we just completed a series in the life of Moses in which we saw them crying out to God again, God, why have you brought us out into this desert? Is it just so that we would die here? And so God gives them manna, some sort of bread-like substance that every morning they're able to gather and they would receive their sustenance in the desert from God as he sent manna, as he literally sent bread for them to eat and to be able to, to survive in the desert. And so Jesus draws their attention back there. Remember that manna that your forefathers had? This was incredibly significant. It was one of the reasons the nation of Israel was able to survive this journey to the promised land, right? And so uh, God, Jesus calls them back to that, a significant moment in their history, and says, but this is even more significant. I am more significant even than that experience of manna that sustained your people. I am the bread of life, and I give eternal life. Though your ancestors ate of the bread and passed away, you will not. We really see in Jesus' words how ingrained the Exodus story was in in the culture and identity of the Israelite people. And we'll see we'll see it also as we as we move forward because for for hundreds of years after the Exodus, the Israelite people still would gather yearly for the Passover. And the Passover, if you if you recall, was was a feast that they uh were were ordered to commemorate each year as they, as they remembered how the angel of God passed over the Israelites on that last plague and how God delivered them from it, from Egypt. And so hundreds of years after the Exodus, Jesus would sit down with his disciples to eat a Passover meal. And that very night, that later that night, he would be betrayed and arrested. And at that Passover meal, Jesus did something really powerful with his disciples. We find the story in Matthew chapter 26. Beginning in verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom." So the Passover feast already had such depth of meaning for the Israelites. It, it was a reminder of this whole deliverance story of how God rescued the Israelites from, from Egypt. But it was to be more than this because Jesus extends that meeting. Jesus says, God is going to deliver you again in a different way, in a new way. And this bread represents my body. And this wine represents my blood because Jesus knew what was coming. And that was the, the crucifixion. And so as he tore that bread, like that loaf of bread, as he tore it, he knew that his body would be broken. And as he poured out the wine into the cups, he, he knew that his blood would be poured out. And he states the purpose of this suffering. He says in verse 28 that this 
is my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he uses covenant language mm-hmm. as he describes this. This is one of the many places and ways in scripture we realize that God's story didn't end and start over with the church, but instead God's mission, his work in this world is a continuing thing. You see, God had a covenant with Israel, began with a man named Abraham. I will bless you. You will be a vast nation. And through you, I will bless all the nations of the world. And now Jesus continues this covenant language. You see, in the Old Testament, the Israelite people had sacrifices they would make and receive forgiveness from those. Jesus says, now my body and my blood, that will be the sacrifice that brings hope and forgiveness to all of you. And he says uh, in verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant. As we take communion, we are participating in covenant relationship with God and with Jesus. He is invited to be his blessed people that bring blessings into this world, invited us to be his blessed people that get to walk in his presence and invite others to do the same. So as we take communion, we remember his death. Uh, the death that brings forgiveness. As an animal was once sacrificed, slaughtered for the forgiveness of the nation of Israel, Jesus says, my body will be that. And as we remember Jesus's death, we would be remiss though to, to stop there because the story doesn't end in death. The story continues and Jesus is raised from the dead. In his resurrection, he conquers death and he demonstrates the creator God's power to generate new life, to create new life. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus also says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So I am the bread of life, and also I am the resurrection, and I am new life. And Jesus invites us into this new life, into this covenant relationship in the kingdom of God. And friends, the good news is that in the kingdom of God, abundant life is possible. Abundant life from now until eternity is possible. And so Jesus, just before his death, initiates this communion meal. And it became central to the way the church would operate. In Acts, uh, we, we read this, uh, a description of the church there in the first century. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together uh, and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." Remember in the beginning I said I wanted to imagine communion, maybe something a little bit different, more like a meal than the kind of uh, ceremony and ritual that we go through as we take communion today. That's a description we read here. The church, centered upon Jesus and his resurrection, gathered daily to celebrate together, to share meals together, to be together, and they would take communion Now, 2,000 years later, our church services look a little bit different than what we read described there. That's not necessarily right or wrong, 
But I do hope that we can gain an appreciation for the fact that the first century church was meeting in homes, intimate communities, celebrating Jesus around a table. I read this book just uh, in the last couple of weeks. It's called Going to Church in the First Century uh, by Robert Banks. Uh, Carrie gave me uh, this copy of the book for me to read. And it's quite fascinating because it helps uh, for me uh it helps to root my mind in what church looked like just after Jesus' resurrection. Um, what it is is a fictional tale um, rooted in the history we know of what Rome was like and uh, b- the biblical narrative describing the way the church operated in the first century. And it tells the story of a man traveling to Rome and staying with some friends who happened to be Christians and had a church service that night. And so he attends their church service with them, and he comes to all these fascinating conclusions, and, you know, he's asking questions of who are these people, and fearful he's walking into some sort of strange cult, but finds it curious and beautiful. The people, they they care deeply for each other, and why in the world are slaves and slave owners sitting together at the same table, and how are men and women participating? He says there's not even a priest here. It was so unreligious, right? Uh, And he observes this first century church gathering that revolves around a meal shared together, conversation around a table, questions asked, and a scroll written by Paul pulled out to kind of reference, what did he have to say about this subject we're talking about? And then gathering, and and the kids would share a song with the group that they had prepared, and they'd have conversation, encourage each other, pray together, and of course, during that meal, they would break bread and remember Jesus. It's a beautiful description of what it looked like to take communion, to be the church in the first century. You know, we have this beautiful description in Acts 2 of the church coming together, unified like that. However, not everything was perfect and all all rosy because you see the church is made up of people. <laughs> people back then and now, the church is people. And so it's so easy for these beautiful truths and the, the message to get twisted just a bit. And, it, and even just a little bit of twisting can cause so much damage and harm. And we'll see as we continue in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian to the church in Corinthian uh, Corinthian Corinth gosh Sometimes, you know, Corinth, I knew that. Um, Paul writes this letter and, and he's instructing the Christians there to correct the abuses that are happening, uh, centered around communion. So let's read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. In the following directive, directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that When you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be division differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. 
Those are some harsh words. That is a harsh rebuke. But do you hear what he's describing in there? Not a church service like probably most of us have ever experienced, but one that's happening around a meal in a home. It sounds and it looks quite ordinary. It's a people of Jesus followers, a, a community of Jesus followers gathered in a home to celebrate. Now, there are distinct dynamics, social, social dynamics taking place in Paul's correction here in this letter. You remember I mentioned in this book, it kind of goes into the idea of a slave owner and a slave sitting together at a table. Well, that would not always be the case. Quite often, a slave in the first century is going to be working long into the night. The meal will already have begun by the time they're getting off work, and maybe they'll straggle in late. And what Paul is reminding them of is communion is about communing with God and with each other. And it's important it's done in that spirit, that it is a spirit of community. We are invited to take communion together, to commune with God in community, in mutuality, with respect for others. And so Paul corrects the church. He speaks harshly towards the church, saying, as you leave slaves out and go on with your meal and your partying, you are not respecting what communion is all about. And though our situation is different here, I think there's still some beautiful implications for us um, as we look at the situation in Corinth, that communion is supposed to be this rich meal experience. And yet sometimes when we take communion, communion is less than less than that, less than what it ought to be. And I myself have have experienced that. I remember just a few months ago, not really in like recent history, we were still kind of in the middle of COVID, but we were meeting. And so all we had out for communion was the individually wrapped um, little communion pods. You know what I mean? And it was styrofoam instead of bread. Well, well get this, the regular one tastes like styrofoam, but I'm gluten-free. So I had to like eat the gluten-free one, which literally I'm like trying to be all reflective and I put it in my mouth and it's like this powdery stuff and I start coughing and choking and I'm up here trying to like talk and uh, Micah had to take over. And uh, and, uh, my thought was in the middle of communion, well, that was terrible. Sometimes communion is less than what it ought to be for a variety of reasons. But our intention here, our intention here in in this community um, is to emphasize the beauty, to emphasize the richness of what communion is supposed to be and to take communion together more often than we have been. And also, as we take communion, to acknowledge who Jesus is and, and to remember his life and his death and his resurrection and that Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is, is central to who we are as a community. Absolutely. So it's our, our intention uh, for the church to um, move into some deeper rhythms of communion in the weeks and months to come. We're incredibly excited about it. Um, that means we're going to do it in some different ways. We envision, um, uh, some of you are with us uh, pre-COVID when we were meeting in a school cafeteria. Quite often we would have communion available. And during the worship time, families would go and take communion together. Kind of a 
beautiful rhythm. For some families, that was really rich and beautiful. Uh, quite often, we'll take communion at the end of service. Uh, remember, the, the, the centerpiece of our gatherings is not Sarah or myself or someone else on the speaking team preaching a message. That's not the center of it. We are centered around Jesus. And nothing says that, nothing makes that statement more poignantly than taking communion. We are centered around Jesus. And we'll literally have communion in the center of the room where we will go to receive that because that is what's central about a gathering. At other times, uh, we'll take communion in other ways. Uh, maybe you've been a part of a church tradition where up front they break the bread, literally, and you come and receive communion from an individual. That's a beautiful, deep, uh, rich, uh, meaningful practice as well. So in the weeks and months to come, we intend to lean a little bit more into communion. Uh, we're incredibly excited. It's a reminder. Uh, it's a time in which we remember who Jesus is, uh, and it's a time in which we together proclaim his love, his death, his resurrection. It's a rich and beautiful opportunity. And as excited as we are about communion together on Sundays, we also want to remind ourselves that communion can happen on other days as well. Like Micah described this idea of having a meal together with Jesus at the center, and we love food. And so we want to remind remind us that we get to have meals, communion meals, with each other throughout the week. A meal centered around Jesus where all are equal, regardless of social standing, and, and where everyone is, is valued as a brother and sister in Christ. And so next week at Friendsgiving, uh, we're going to have a meal in here. And just be warned, at some point we're going to say, and this is communion, right? And we're going to break bread together while we share that meal. It's a rich and beautiful opportunity. So I want to invite the band back up here, and we're, we're going to take communion together. All are invited to the communion table. And when we come to the communion table, we are all equal because there is no favoritism with God. Remember, friends, that there is nothing you can do or say that qualifies you to sit at the communion table. Rather, it is all about what Jesus has done. It is all about the death, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus who came to make God known to us. Jesus who showed us what a life of love looks like. Jesus in his great love sacrificed himself, and he was the perfect and holy, the unblemished sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice that covers sin. Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. And as we partake of the bread, let us remember that the bread represents his body broken on the cross. And as we drink the juice, let us remember that that represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. And so we take this communion, re really, we don't, we say take communion, we're receiving this communion. Cause right, it's not a gift, it's a gift. It's not something that we can, we choose ourselves. Like we receive communion. We receive his body. We receive his blood by, and we remember Jesus' sacrifice. And like Micah said, in this act of communion, we're proclaiming together. That we believe in Jesus, that we believe he is the savior of this world. 